So welcome everybody. Kohelet chapter two class here in Manhattan Beach. Really a uh, pleasure to be here again. I know it's a much lighter crowd, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of benefits that you guys have the floor a lot more now. And uh, it's exactly, it's, it's not just a lecture. I want everybody to, uh, of course, participate and ask questions, comments, whatever you have. Uh, if anybody wants to get Tanakhim, I think they're, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hand them out. There's probably JPS somewhere. So uh, we'll, we'll, I'll just recap briefly what we spoke about last time. Uh, we spoke about the introduction to Kohelet. Who is this man? We said it's somebody that's Solomonic in his wisdom and his wealth of his lifetime. Doesn't have to necessarily be Shalomon himself. It's a person that's lamenting the human condition, especially a person that's lamenting the fact that the world seems to be continually the same. Nothing humans do can actually make a fundamental difference in the course of the world. I don't want to depress you guys too much, um, but that's the way it seems. It seems that we're so powerless to actually make lasting changes in the world that why does anything actually even matter in the end? Um, he even says that uh, wisdom is total folly. We're going to see a lot more about that. This chapter, what value is there to anything that humans can possibly do if really it just goes on and on? You're going to die. Your children are going to die. It's all going to end. And, you know, there's nothing really lasting. There's nothing you could actually latch on to and grasp onto. Um, and last week, I, I mentioned to you some of my own personal therapeutic techniques that saved me from this way of thinking. And as a person that deals with patients every day who are thinking this way, I understand it. And I, of course, myself have thought this way at times, you know, to some degree. Um, so I think it's very important to acknowledge these feelings and these thoughts within a Jewish scope, because if we don't do that, people start to feel like the second I have these questions, I'm a kofir and I'm uh, you know, and that's it for me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a kofir and I'm doomed to hell. But, but, but Hachamim, including this amazing book within Tanakh, even though it's very controversial and it's got its uh, ways of talking about things that are not so happy, there really is a tremendous amount of wisdom in it and the lessons we can learn from it uh, and it's very, it's in a way balanced because he says different things at different times. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's contradicting it himself. It just means that he's complex like us. Do I always feel the same way about a certain issue? Certainly not. Um, and we're going to see that within this chapter as well. Uh, so chapter two now, Perek Bet, that we're up to, um, is really you know, the beginning of uh, a, a three chapter section where it's just some reflections and meditations from this man, Kohelet. Um, and it's really going to touch on three major components. So the first 11 Pesukim are going to be talking about pleasure and hard work and toil. Then it's going to transition the next six Pesukim from 12 to 17, talking about wisdom and folly. And finally, at the end, it's going to talk about toil and pleasure, wisdom and folly. Again, it's going to tie it all in with some closing remarks from Pizukim 18 to 26. So let's see what Kohelet is trying to tell us. But before we dive in again, I just want to give a couple more remarks. Um, the word that Kohelet's going to be using when referring to the idea of pleasure is an interesting word. 
is simcha. So if you, you read the Torah, the word simcha usually means a deep spiritual joy. Like on Sukkot, and it's simcha that you're going to have all the people in your household and the downtrodden people. Um, but here in Kohelet, it has a much simpler definition, Baruch and the definition is about enjoyment and, and physical pleasure, and Tov has that same meaning. Um, so I don't want you to mix that up. And Kohelet, throughout this book, is going to have very conflicting judgments about pleasure. So on the one hand, he's saying it's very good in chapter 2, 3, 5, and 8. He's going to talk about how great pleasure is because pleasure is, after all, our only helic in this world. If you're the only helic we have, after all is said and done, you look back on your life, what was really man's helic in this world is some type of physical pleasure, according to him. Um, but on this, at the same time, a person is involved in pleasure to a certain degree where he realizes this pleasure is totally meaningless. And it's very not lasting. You can't really latch onto it. And it's absurd. So he has different ways of relating to pleasure. And also toil, the hard work that we do that leads us to having the ability to have pleasure, also could be seen as meaningless because the pleasure itself doesn't last. Um, and this is a very uh, kind of cynical way of thinking about the world. He has a lot of good points, though. You know, when we're not feeling so well, when we're feeling down on the world, it's very easy to put on these glasses and see the world in a negative light. Um, but I, but my, my job here is not to only present that, but I want to also present to you guys maybe a way of showing where is he possibly going a little bit extreme in his thinking. And we don't have to go down that rabbit hole necessarily. Not that there's an absolute right and wrong to how to think, but just a way of staying balanced in the way that we think. And I think that's really the fundamental of mental health. Um, another part of what he's saying here uh, is that these pleasures he's going to be discussing are not frivolous pleasures. They're not improper. He's not talking about having orgies and doing crazy drugs. He's talking really about reasonable and respectable, wholesome pleasures, like eating and drinking, spending time with your wife and kids, things like that. Um, just the simple mundane day-to-day -day pleasures, even wine in moderation. So don't think he's only putting down extreme pleasure. He's putting down the simple pleasures of life. Uh, and, and he's also gonna have mixed feelings about those as well. Um, but the point is people are not always consistent. You and I are not always consistent and that's okay. And we're going to have that ability to see at different times that we feel differently about these things. Um, and for example, you know, when, when a person goes to a party, uh, you know, they might be merrymaking and they might be superficially happy. And I think all of us have felt this being part of the Syrian community where we have a, thank God, a, a farah every night almost. Every other night you're going to an engagement, to a wedding. Maybe you have something going on in your life. Maybe you have something important that's really bringing you down. And you have to put on a happy face. Well, there is some merriment in seeing people that you love and eating good food and all that. But deep down, there's an emptiness and there's a depression that's never quite filled just by physical pleasure. And we'll talk about that as well. Um, and the final point I'll make before we'll stop Pasuk Aleph is interesting. Kohelet's attitude 
towards pleasure might have actually changed over time. So it seems maybe when he first started indulging in certain types of pleasure that he was able to with his financial means, he discovered they're pretty empty and he kind of put them down. But then after he went into all his wisdom and trying to figure out, okay, so where is the value in being a human being and what is our helic in this world? He comes back to pleasure and he says, you know what? Pleasure is not so bad after all. Even though it's not so great, it doesn't really fill the void in our hearts. Like maybe Rabbi Soloveitchuk would say, we're all a lonely man of faith. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, each and every one of us feels spiritually and cosmically lonely. Even if we have amazing people surrounding us, there's a spiritual void at all times. Until we could merge back with God in death, there's always going to be something missing. And that's okay. But just recognize that that's there. And the pleasures that you seek are never going to fully uh, feed that and sate that. Um, it feels good to have pleasure and that's okay. And, and uh, you know, we should at least enjoy what we were given in this world to enjoy. So let's start off Pasuk Aleph. I said to myself, he says, Come, I will treat you to merriment. Taste mirth, uh, taste goodness, yani, or, or pleasure. So basically, he's talking to himself. He's talking about his inner dialogue. And he's saying, this is what I'm thinking about. I want to engage in some degree of, uh, of fun, of maybe just physical pleasure. And this word, anasikha, what is, any, anybody know what the shodesh is of anasikha? Anasikha. It's... Exactly. So, lenasot uh, Exactly. So, anasikha means I will test you out in a way. So, he's saying to his own heart, I'm going to try this out. Let's try this out together. I'm going to test out how this makes my heart feel, my heart mind. What is its response to the pleasure I'm going to give it? And he says, eventually, he's giving you a sneak preview. Gamhu Havil, you know, that's also total inanity and futility. Lishok Amarti Meholal, Pasuk Bed. Exactly, good. So Lishok Amarti Meholal, of revelry, I said, it's mad. It's totally, you know, insane. Musimha Mazot Asa of merriment, what good is that? So, here he's saying in a beautiful tikbolet, meaning he's saying the same thing twice in a different way. He's saying really revelry, merriment, pleasure is totally uh, not going to lead me anywhere. But what I started noticing already from now is, you know, when I guide people through meditations or when I work with them in therapy, one of the most uh, kind of the, the litmus test that I see so often for people who have anxiety or depression is that their thinking is overly goal-oriented. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Ah, beautiful. Exactly. You've heard me, me talk about, we've spoken on a personal level about this, Albert. So the point is, if you're always thinking about the next thing, it's never going to be enough. And that's okay. I, you know, people always jump down my throat when I say this. They say, but what about, you got to fix the world. Tikkun olam. And, uh, you know, faith is protest, as Rabbi Sachs would say. I agree. I think we need to make the world a better place. 
And I think it's vital. I think there's a, the human condition has an illness within it that if not solved, no amount of you acting will actually help fix the world. Two things. Number one, like we said last week, the deepest truths seem to be paradoxes. So on the one hand, the world is totally fractured and imperfect and is in need of healing. But on the other hand, and just as equally true, the world is totally perfect and it doesn't need changing. And unless you could hold those two things in your hands at the same time, you're going to have an issue when you're moving forward. So we know in the Gemara, it says that a bitarfon used to walk around with two things in his pockets. In his right pocket, it would say, for me, the world was created. His left pocket, anybody know? I am but dust and ashes. It's the ability to constantly hold those two things in your mind at the same time that are the ingredients for a balanced person. And humility doesn't mean being self-deprecating. Humility, as I think C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Stop making it all about me. So it's the ability to balance these two things. Uh, so a person who's totally goal-oriented and never enjoying this moment is going to be off-kilter, off-balance. Yes? So can we assume what, what he's saying applies to an adult as opposed to a child having fun and pleasure in a more innocent way? Absolutely. I think that's exactly it. I think a child doesn't have philosophical questions. And people have gone, on my case personally, in, in years past for, for being very philosophical. And they try to use that as a way of showing there must be something wrong with me. And I, I, I've had a lot of my own personal growth within that. But I start to realize, like, at the same time as you could, you could go overboard with philosophy and let it detract from your human experience, the experience of philosophizing itself is also fun if you make it fun. But if you're not with a participant who wants to philosophize, it's not going to be fun and you're not going to have a good time. So you got to also make sure whoever you're trying to kind of pick their brain is willing to play this game with you. So you have to be careful and, and make sure that you're, you're speaking to the right audience. I think that's an important thing. So yeah. the goal here is to seek balance, not necessarily what's right or wrong. That's what I think the goal is. Yes. I think once you bring morality into it, you, you, you get into a rabbit hole of thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. But once you bring, you just come back to the moment and you realize that if I'm, if I'm more present, the goodness, hopefully, it's a little bit of a leap of faith, the goodness will hopefully come naturally as a result of me being more present. But the more I'm in my goal-oriented thinking, even if I'm intending to do good, the road to hell is very easily paved with good intentions. We know that throughout human history, every, almost very few people are actually sociopaths who intend to do evil. They're, they exist. Trust me, I see them all the time. But those people are a fraction of the evildoers. A lot of evildoers are people who intended to do good. And I'm not, I'm not a judge. I'm not saying we should judge anybody. I'm just saying to preempt your own capability for doing evil, be more present with whatever you're doing. Um, so that's what I noticed just initially from, from the way Kohelet is speaking. Uh, he's very go-oriented because his entire evaluation of pleasure is based on the fact that pleasure should produce something else. Who says, why can't pleasure be for its own sake? 
we know that the uh, Hachamim talk about Limud Torah as Sha'ashua, which comes from the word Sha'a, which is to turn towards. So it's like play. The Torah is like play because it's that which turns toward itself, Sha'ashua. And it, which means it's intrinsically valuable. It's intrinsically fun. So why did God create the world? Because it's intrinsically valuable. It, it's, it's almost like, why not create the world? And, and it's a musical thing in a way. So Kohelet seems to be tone deaf to that element of the world because he's always looking about the next thing. But pleasure is not fun if you're looking at what is it producing for me. The whole point of pleasure is the pleasure itself, right? Um, so, so that's already seeming to be part of his issue. Um, and interestingly, he says this word, mahul, meholal, uh, sorry, meholal, meaning it's insanity, it's mad. Uh, it, it actually, it could be a pun on the word mahul, which means mixed. So when they would dilute wine, like it says in, in Yeshayahu, sovech mahul maim, your wine is diluted with water. And it was a way of talking about the corruption of the people because they would sell the wine as though it was really more concentrated. Um, but the wordplay here maybe is talking about, uh, you know, some kind of uh, mixture of, of wine and whatever he's using, it's even trying to hint at how he tried to find this enjoyment and this pleasure. Um, I wrote a note for myself here about clinging. Uh, one of the things about meditation that we teach people is whenever you're meditating, that, you know, I had an amazing meditation recently. They said just six words of advice. One of them was don't recall, don't imagine for the future, don't think. One of them was rest. I think one of them is uh, don't analyze. There's a whole bunch of different pieces of advice that you can remind yourself as you're meditating. But one of the classics is about clinging and aversion. Clinging meaning I'm desiring something. I'm desiring to hold on to a good feeling. Aversion is I'm trying to push away a bad feeling. So somebody who's constantly trying to get the pleasure is clinging to something. But if we bring ourselves to a more meditative mindset, instead of clinging to that pleasure when it comes, so you're enjoying a good meal, you don't think to yourself, oh, I wish this taste could be on my tongue constantly. No, you enjoy it and then it passes. The whole enjoyment of eating a food is it comes and it goes. If you taste of kibbeh was on your mouth the whole Friday night till Saturday night, that's not, it's a little disgusting if you ask me. The beauty of kibbeh is if in five seconds you ate the kibbeh and you swallowed it, and don't, don't suck on the kibbeh. You know, that's, that's uh, kind of my opinion on, the, on, this, on that idea. Um, and there's a beautiful rabbinic story here, I think. Um, so here it says, uh, Rabbi Pinhas quotes an aphorism uh, here, sorry. Here we go, an aphorism. If the gold is alloyed, what use is pleasure? And he tells a tale of a bridegroom who was killed at his own wedding. His father kept it a secret until the time came to tell the guests that they should say the benediction of mourners, not the one for a bridegroom. So he waited till the last second to reveal to them, my son was actually killed. So at the funeral, Rabbi Muhammad Zakai preached the verse, uh, this verse exactly of laughter of Sehok, I said, it's made of merriment, what good is that? And the rabbinic commentators in the Gemara were picking up on Kohelet's tragic sense of life's fragility. So that's a truth, I don't wanna, totally react too much to what he's saying because he's right after all 
things. But so far, Kohalif, as the, as the, I think it's the Kobe Pettit song goes, everything changes. It's all temporary. If you're in pain, that's great news. It's all temporary. If you're in pleasure, it's a difficult thing to hear. It's not going to last. You know, and it's the most humbling thing you could ever tell yourself, no matter what you're experiencing. Is it's all temporary. Um, so there's a, tr a tremendous fragility that you start to realize at certain moments in your life, especially when you're experiencing the sublime or the oceanic feeling that Freud talked about when you're feeling small. And by feeling small in the expanse of the universe, you also feel large. It's a very paradoxical feeling. That's why we love astronomy so much. It's there a, is a legend about Shlomo Melech. He used to have a ring mm. that he has three letters on it. When he has some problems, say, Gamzei Amazing. Amazing. That's the biggest wisdom you could ever have is Gamzei Avod. Perfect. Um, so that's, that's great. Let's see. Any questions or comments up until now? Awesome. Now, I venture to tempt my flesh with wine. Uh, to grasp folly while letting my mind direct with wisdom to the end that I might learn which of the two was better for men to practice in their few days of life under heaven. So he's saying, what's better to engage in, wisdom or folly? And like we mentioned last time, there's these art forms that have so much given up on wisdom or anything that really appears like, uh, you know, capturing an image. And they've embraced certain the absurdism of life. And there's this Dadaism school of art where they, they, they try to portray uh, things in a ridiculous way. And it has a function within society. I don't want to put it down totally. The, say it again. Oh, yeah, the, so the, the function of, of, of Dadaism is, is amazing because it's an outlet for the absurdity that people feel. It's similar to Kohelet itself. Um, so he's, he's playing a game with himself. He's, he's making an experiment almost. Which one of these should I really be following? And does it even matter? Um, so even though Kohelet is examining folly, he never really admits to fully indulging in it. Um, and even more so, he, he's going to state in, in later in this chapter, my wisdom stayed with me um, throughout all of this experiment. Really, it's probably just a thought experiment. Uh, but it also probably means that when he talks about folly, he also means just engaging in a lot of pleasures. That's probably what he really means. It's like, should I be learning Gemara every night in Chadetzion? Or should I go and do whatever I want with my friends any night? Does it really matter at the end of the day if I do one or the other? Is anybody really going to reward it? Say it again. I'm sure you can. Yeah. So, so he's going to say, like, let's see if, if it matters how much of each I'm, I'm engaging in. Um, so, yeah, he, 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 he seems to be speaking to himself in a certain way. And the, the point of this, I think, is fault looping. We all experience this. And especially in severe mental illness, you talk to people, they say, I have this one recurring thought or two or three recurring thoughts that really are like a, a, a knife to my heart and they can't get over it. And that's kind of at the root of a mental illness. Um, and he's looking now to have some kind of control over this you know, these tidal waves of emotions that are hitting him throughout his life. 
Um, and he, he's looking for whatever behavior is going to pr prove to be good and profitable. He's like a real scientist here. He says, I just want to find that which is going to be good for me. Pasuk Dalit. Igdalti maasai, baniti li batim, natati li keramim. I multiplied my possessions. I built myself houses and I planted vineyards. So he's going to list all the different things that he did for himself. He's developing all these resources, houses, vineyards, gardens, groves, fruit trees, irrigation pools. And these are clearly not totally ridiculous. Like these are beautiful things that could really be part of a family system, part of a society. These could help a lot of people. Slaves, livestock, treasures, things that could really be beneficial to, to certain people. Obviously, slavery today we would never allow, but in those days, that's something that was unfortunately going on. Um, he's going to talk about singers and things like that as well. Um, but the, the word that really comes to mind now is this word li. He keeps repeating, Baniti li batim, natati li keramim. It could have just said, natati keramim, baniti batim. Why is he emphasizing it over and over and over again? It seems to imply this consumerism mindset of his, of, of his age or of, of, what he, of our age, really, of what he was thinking about all the time was being a consumer and constantly trying to fill a God-shaped void in his life. And everybody's got this spiritual mind. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's too much in that direction and not enough in the other direction. Like, you know, anyone who, who knows anything about uh, or has some experience with real happiness will tell you my greatest happiness didn't come from gaining more things for myself. It came from giving back to other people and, and sharing that happiness with other people. What we're going to see throughout this chapter, that's a big, uh, you know, part that's missing from Kohelet's mindset. So that's another thing I think that would prevent us from falling into his rabbit hole. Um, and his, his description is, is pretty ironic um, because it's, it's not meant to, to glory in his own achievements here. He's going to talk about Maasai, but it doesn't really mean Maasai. It, it really just, it means, I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, he's saying. He's saying, I did all these things and still they didn't get me anywhere. And he's not trying to, to pat himself on the back. He's just saying it out of a sense of like sadness. Um, okay, so that's Pasuk Dalit. Asiti li ganot ufardesim menatati bahem etz kolperi. I laid out gardens and groves in which I planted every kind of fruit tree. Anybody else reminded of something from that Pasuk? Bereshit, right? Etz peri, ose peri lemino. Just to me, it reminded me of that. It reminds me of the Garden of Eden. It's almost like he's trying to play God in a certain sense. A person who gets to that level of tremendous wealth and power, we see it in our community today as well. It's almost like, you know what? I, I have this need to be godlike. And we know from Bereshit Aleph and Bereshit Bet, Bereshit Aleph is all about being like creator God, being mini creator and emulating God, right? Like Peru, Urbu, Melu, Go and gain dominion over the land. That's only one element of man. We said you're going to be unbalanced. That's an important element. And people who don't have it are not happy. But the other element is Perigbet of Bereshit, the lonely man of faith. The person who is tasked with Le'ovda'u Shomra. 
to be subservient to the land, to give back. It's always about what is my obligation to the world, not what am I amassing. So this is a person right now who in his life, he's very Adam one. Oh, yes, exactly. That's not what you can do, what your country can do for you. A hundred percent. That's beautiful. So here is a person who, who is trying to play God because we all have this need for closeness with God. But if you take it all the way to this direction, you're going to try to say, hey, what if I became a creator to such a degree that people start worshiping me? And what Kohelet is saying, yeah, I tried that. It didn't exactly result in me feeling this deep peace and happiness. If anything, it made me more depressed. So that's an important thing to keep in mind as we go along in our lives. It's like cats in the cradle. You know, you could, you could, dad could be going to work every day and the son just wants to play baseball. And then the son gets to a certain age where he doesn't even want to play baseball anymore, or whatever it is. Asiti li berechot ma'im. He says, I constructed pools of water enough to irrigate a forest shooting up with trees. Um, I bought male and female slaves and I acquired stewards. I also acquired more cattle, both herds and flocks than all who were before me in, uh, in Jerusalem. Right, uh, we know from the Torah, Abraham was a person who had tremendous wealth. So we're not putting down wealth in general, but we're putting down wealth that doesn't have a framework behind it that is deeply you know, engaged in some kind of meaningful pursuit. So for him, he was looking to see maybe these pleasures in and of themselves have something that is deeply meaningful. And the answer that he found was really no. They don't have that meaning. Um, and it, have a, a liturgy yeah. of negativity. Yes. At what point does he have a, what thing is positive? Yes. So he's gonna, he's gonna talk about that in later chapters. I'm sorry, maybe not as much tonight, but he's gonna sing the praises of wisdom as well. Um, in comparison to folly. So he's going to have certain things that he praises, and he's going to have, I think it's 9 9, uh, Perek 9, Pasuk 9 is a beautiful Pasuk that people love about just the simple pleasures of life and how to really, that's what we got. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> we'll see. We'll get there eventually, I promise. But I feel, I feel the same way. It's pretty, it's, it could get depressing if you don't give it a, a context. Kanasti li gam kesef is up, Pasuk het. I further amassed silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces, and I got myself male and female singers, as well as the luxuries of commoners, coffers and coffers of them, or it could also mean women taken as booty. So there's, there's certain ways of, of thinking about all this, and he's trying to overwhelm you, I think, by giving you this gibuv, this list of all different types of pleasure that humans could ever engage in. So he says, I gained more wealth than anyone before me in Yerushalayim. And this is not, again, to toot his own horn. He's just saying, lest you think that maybe I wasn't happy because I could have had more. No, I had more than anybody ever had in Yerushalayim. And in addition, 
even with all that, I still had my wisdom. So I, he said, I didn't totally lose it. And I, I made sure to, you know, what he, I, it could mean one, on the one hand, my wisdom was what allowed me to, to gain all this wealth. Uh, but at the same time, it kept him from abandoning good sense while he was uh, amassing all that wealth. So he didn't go too far off the edge despite having all this stuff. So as crazy as things might get for him, he never went too much into the pleasure and into the indulgence uh, to a degree that it would have caused his collapse. So at least he has that. And maybe there's a, there is a value that he's noticing in wisdom. I withheld from my eyes nothing they asked for and denied myself no enjoyment. Rather, I got enjoyment out of all my wealth and that was all I got out of my wealth. So he's saying, trust me, anything I possibly could have gotten out of this stuff, I got it. Um, and, you know, I, I have all this, this, this pleasure and that, that's really my chilek he's starting to, to hint at, which, which is that this is what I had, you know, and, and beyond that, I had not much else. Now, this is pretty sad if you think about this, because maybe a person of our times relative to everybody else has not even close to as much wealth as he had. But when we start to think about where does happiness come from, we hinted at it last time. Happiness comes from between. It comes from feeling larger than yourself. It comes from relationship to family, to friends, to nature, to God, to the universe. And without that relationship, you're going to have a real hole in your heart. So he's very Adam one, not enough Adam two. There's a reason Bereshit Perik Bet opens with the words, These are the generations of the heaven and earth. That's a very strange thing. Every other time you hear about Toldot in the Torah, it's talking about people. People have children. But the Torah is setting up Toledot of Shamayim Ba'aretz. It's saying, you as a human being should see yourself as the child of heaven and earth of father and mother as heaven and earth. And, and that shows you you're it. You are part and parcel of the world. You shouldn't feel like a stranger in the world. And it, when you do feel like a stranger in the world, you start feeling hostile towards it. You start feeling the need to gain dominion over it, like in chapter one of Bereshit. But once you start seeing yourself as part of it, and yourself is made up of stardust, the world doesn't seem like such a scary place anymore. It seems like that's me over there. It was me and it's going to be me. Yes. Is that I love that interpretation. I never thought of that. I think that's fantastic. I think it could very well be. In a certain way, he's, he's, he's bridging the two worlds and you could interpret that whichever way you want. But at the end of the day, we are the product of this world. And I think... Therefore, we should hold the whole world as sacred for that reason. Um, okay, so now uh, we're gonna shift in uh, uh, pasuk twelve. So let's just do one more, one more pasuk. He throws on another thing now. He says, "Now what about my toil? We spoke about all of my." Pleasures that I sought, eh, that's all havil, that's all total, uh, you know, uh, futility. What about my hard work? Maybe that's where something was really good. He says, no, nah, 
that too, that was total hevel, um, and there was no value to that either. Um, because man's pleasure is always going to be inadequate, then of course his toil is going to be inadequate, because the only thing you get out of toil is pleasure. And if pleasure itself is not adequate, of course, toil is not going to be adequate. Now, anybody who has a job that they enjoy to some degree, even though it's not going to be constant enrapturement and joy, there is something fun about working. That's not just about the products of the work, the process itself of working. So it could be as simple as the guy washing dishes behind the, the kitchen. A person who's washing dishes and is very angry and is very unhappy with their job is not going to really be having a good time. But then you see once in a while, you see one of these guys dressed in his apron. You know, it's got some stains on it and it's all right. He's fine. And he's listening to his music, some salsa music or whatever it is. And he's, you know, he's getting into the rhythm of it. And he's he's washing the dishes in a rhythmic way and he's moving them along and he's having a great time. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful way of working. And we, and we, we were talking about goal-oriented thinking. One of these guys that I love to listen to, his name is Alan Watts. He's a, a philosophy guy from the 70s, really brilliant guy, if you want to look into him. He talks about, he says, you know, we always think about life as a journey. Everybody's always talking about life as a journey. But if that's the case, then really the only thing we're, we really care about with the journey is the destination. He says, that's not, you know, where's the destination? You never really quite get there. He says, therefore, a better analogy is life is not a journey. Life is a dance. It's more like a dance. Where when you're dancing, if I dance from here to there, the point of the dance is not to get to that point in the room. Because then the best kind of dancers would be the ones who ran to that part of the room. Or when you go to hear a beautiful uh, piano concerto or a, a sonata or some kind of concert. You don't go to the concert to hear the, that, that uh, chord at the end, like the dum. No, you go to hear the whole concert because the concert itself is enjoyable. We should start to think of life less like a journey and more like a dance, more like a symphony. And we know in physics, that is the case. We're figuring that out. The particles are always dancing. They're always just vibrating in a certain way. We evolved on a certain plane of reality where we develop goals and goal-oriented thinking. But once you really get down to it, reality is just ecstatic for being. That's what reality is. It's just vibing right along without a care in the world. There's no good and evil within the realm of molecules. And that's a specific realm of reality. I'm not saying that's the only reality, but once you start realizing if we get too much into the absolutism of our own thinking, then we fall into this trap of everything's goal-oriented. Everything is constantly, unless this happens, I'm a failure. Da, 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 da. The molecules don't think like that. So be more like a molecule. Be like an electron for once. You know, go to sleep one night, tonight. Let's all go to sleep. And instead of forcing ourselves to worry about today and tomorrow, let's just be like an electron. And try that out for 10 minutes when you're meditating. That's fine. <laughs> if I get angry phone calls tonight, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to screen some of my calls. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. I, I do couples counseling if you. <laughs> so, 
So yeah, that's that's really the, the way that I think to escape this way of thinking is by getting out of this delusion that we have. We have a collective delusion that we constantly need to get something else or to be more. And once we come into terms with right now, everything all of a sudden is totally fine. And we say, how did I forget? How did I forget that this moment is where it's at? And it just happens. It's okay. We get lost and then we're found. That's life. Uh, so now, Pasuk, you said again? Does make a difference between an A personality and a B personality? I think very much so. I think there are different balances. And there's pros and cons to both. Don't get me wrong. The guy who just sits around all day and tells you how he's a molecule, if he doesn't have a job, he's going to suffer. It's just the bottom line. You know, so you got to balance these things. Of course, I'm not saying to go be a hippie in the forest. You could if you want. I'm not stopping you. But uh, So Pasuk 12 now is going to begin a section about wisdom and folly. Uh, so let's see, 12 to 17. <laughs> So the second part of that pasuk is basically unintelligible, and we're going to find a different way of reading it. That's that's uh, given by uh, Rabbi Fox here. So let's see. But we'll read the translation, and the translation flips around the order of the pasuk because the the second part is more parenthetical. For what will the man be like who will succeed the one who is ruling over what was built up long ago? Anybody understand that? Yeah, me neither. It's, it's unintelligible, basically. It's, for what will the man be like who will succeed the one who is ruling over what was built up long ago? Yeah, it's, it's all, all going to be totally different. Um, so the next part of it, though, you could, this one, this part is understandable. My thoughts also turn to appraising wisdom and madness and folly. So that's fine. But he proposes over here, Rabbi Fox, that instead of reading Aharei HaMelech, change it to Aharai HaMolech. And it's going to fit with the later Pesukim in this chapter. The person who is going to rule after me, who's to say what kind of guy that guy's going to be, right? Who knows who it's going to be? Is he going to be foolish? Is he going to be wise? If you're a, the owner of a big company and you got to pass the keys on to your, your, the next person, and maybe it's your son, maybe it's not. Who knows? Like you built up this huge thing. How many times do we see in the transition of leadership a tremendous failure in the next leader? And it's like, wow, that guy's whole lifetime went to nothingness because of two years of one guy's total ineptitude. It happens all the time. So Kohelet is really lamenting this. See, exactly. The second generation, even the third generation. That's right. Oh, that's called it's a specific thing, the third generation. Yeah, it's a thing. I want to I'm gonna look that up. Okay. Yeah, cool. They totally fell. Wow. Okay, so it's exactly in line with this. So I see that person. Exactly. And and we know there's no way of predicting who the next leader is gonna be, what the next guy in line is gonna look like. So it's it's a tough thing to accept, like he's saying. Um so let's see. Uh, so the next pasuk, but Aiti Ani. This is what you were looking for, a, a, a little bit of positivity. 
Say it again. Yeah, positivity. What is he saying? He's saying wisdom really is superior to folly. As light is superior to darkness, right? So he's saying, even though wisdom doesn't really produce much, it's still better than total folly. Because total folly, you're in such a psychosis in a way, where I, you know, I see it every day. There are times when you look at a psychotic patient, and the guy's having a great time. He's laughing. He's really enjoying himself. But then sometimes you see the terror. You see the paranoia. You see the utter confusion. And a sprinkle of wisdom would have helped this person. I'm not saying, therefore, not at all, because it's an illness. But the wisdom allows us to make more sense out of the world, to not slip into that degree of abject terror, paranoia, and confusion with regards to the world. And that, that amount of wisdom goes a very long way. Uh, obviously, wisdom could go too far and, and make you too much in your mind and not enough in your heart. But that's something we could continue to talk about. Um, so Kohelet now, really, he's, he's starting to applaud wisdom. He's starting, but at the same time, he's going to tell us in a second that it means nothing in a way. Because why? Because the, the wise man and the foolish man, they both die. They both go right down there. Exactly. And, you know, it's like, it's the great equalizer, death, you know, and there's no way of avoiding that. So really, what is wisdom worth if it's just going to result in you being in the ground anyway? You know, and we, we were just talking about this. That's so goal-oriented. What about the very uh, intrinsic value of wisdom itself? There's something so uplifting about understanding something. You're, you're learning quantum physics. It's so revelatory for the first time. The experience in and of itself is valuable. People who have mystical experiences, you know, they're not going to look at you afterwards and tell you, yeah, you know, it was all meaningless uh, at the end of the day. They're going to say, no, that meaning, the, the meaning of that mystical experience was so meaningful, so inherently meaningful, it justified every moment of suffering that I ever had in my entire life. That's what a person who has a mystical experience will say. The exact opposite of what he's saying, that once you discover what intrinsic value really means, you, you forgive all the times in your life where you held something against God, where you were kind of resisting forgiving God because of whatever suffering we all go through in some way. Um, so he's now going to really uh, double down on what he was saying earlier, uh, because human wisdom is, is limited and everything is fragile. Um, it, it's limited. But at the same time, wisdom is still better than folly. So I think he still realizes maybe the intrinsic value to wisdom. Let's see. By the way, uh, yeah. before they included the, the book of Kohelet in the Bible, mm -hmm. there was a big argument among, among the Hakamim. Those who did not want this book to be included, one of the reasons was that uh, he contradicts himself. Yes. And one of them is the, his idea about wisdom. Wow. Sometimes he says it's good to be wise. Yeah. And sometimes he said to be wise and to be stupid is the same. It's the same. So they did not like it. Exactly. And, you know, uh, the, what I, the only way I could really kind of make sense of this is picture somebody who just went through a tremendous tragedy in their life. 
even though for him, it's, it, that's not what happened. Picture a guy like Eov. Eov is a person who, who really was a good man his whole life. And then a tragic thing happens. Could you, you, we could identify with Kohelet at that moment where we say, you, you, you buried your kids? You buried your kids? I agree with you now. I agree with you. It was all meaningless. It was all hevel avalim and absurd. And my entire attempt to find meaning in this world is not. So that's why I think it's still valuable. And I'm glad that they, they kept this book in. You know, I'm sorry to get so heavy on you, but that's, those are the times where you really could relate to people who have totally lost faith. And that, for me, allows me to, to have compassion to any person that I encounter, the biggest drug addict, even a, a, an offender, a sex offender to minors. I have to be able to sit across from them and see the humanity in them. And it's not always easy, but once you start to realize that everything that happens, happens for some sort of reason in some way, whether that's genetic or environmental or whatever it is, in a certain sense, yes, there's human responsibility, but in another sense, this is kind of just a natural course of events that led this guy to being a child sex offender. And my job now is to rehabilitate him, not to bring down the, the mighty hammer of justice on his head. So the ability to, to realize like, yeah, there are times where life gets absurd and people will do absurd things. That's just part of the human condition. And we, we have to hope that even though we're going to lose our minds at times, trust me, I have myself when I'm, you know, really uh, overworked or whatever it is. And I have to lean on the people in my life who remind me to come back to earth, to come back to center, to come back to peace. And sometimes we'll be that for other people. And sometimes other people will be that for us. So any person that I meet, I try to say, I'm going to try to be that for them because one day someone's going to have to be that for me. And it's just passing it along in a way. Um, so let's see what he says now. So at least it's better to have wisdom than folly most of the time. We know this from the famous Gemara about Kiddush, uh, but that's beside the point. He says, a wise man has his eyes in his head. Whereas a fool walks in darkness. But I also realized that the same fate awaits them both. See, even though the wise man is walking and he sees and he could preempt things and he knows which business deals to make and whatever it is. And the person who is living in folly is suffering more and stumbling around and making all the wrong moves. End of the day, they're both buried six feet under and you never know when that's going to happen too. So yeah, that's an absurdity to the human condition. Um, and, and it seems like this word is just talking about the universal fate of death that we're all going to encounter. Um, he says, so I reflected, the fate of the fool is also destined for me. To what advantage then have I been wise? And I came to the conclusion that that too is futile. He's like, where is my wisdom really going to bring to me? I could have sat around like some 
dib on the street for the rest of my life. And, and I could have not toiled all those times. And it, I would have just ended up the same way as anybody else. You hear his frustration here. He ends He says, because the wise man, just like the fool, is not remembered forever. No matter who you are, they're going to forget you eventually. Over a certain amount of time, they'll forget you, trust me. If not in 2,000 years, in 2 million years, they'll forget you. Whereas the succeeding days roll by, both are forgotten. Alas, the wise man dies just like the fool. And this word, it has the same kind of sound of a lamentation of how could this be almost? The hacham and the kesil, the smart and the, the wise and the, the, the uh, unwise and the fool both have the same fate. Um, it's really depressing to him. Sometimes it's better for the fool. Ignorance is bliss. Ah. And uh, the wise man sees too much. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The fool bounces along in life and a lot of things don't bother. Absolutely. It's, it's so true. And the amazing thing is, you know, you talk about, you know, uh, there's a great book, The Master and His Emissary. It's written by somebody who knows a lot of neuroscience. Talks about the different hemispheres of the human brain. That the left brain, and this is not absolutely true, in any, but don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a rough, roughly true thing. The left brain specializes in analytical thinking, separating myself as the subject from that as the object and being able to analyze that over there versus me over here and understanding things in that way. So things like math and science, breaking things down to see how they work. And Rabbi Sachs talks about this in the great partnership as well. And then you have the right hemisphere, which is more about putting things together to see what they mean. And it's less about subject object, me over here and that object over there. And it's more about the connection between the two. And people who are quote unquote smart, according to the school system, tend to be better at things like reading and math, which is more left brain. But the guy who's good at music and the guy who's good at sports, they're, maybe they're more right brain, but and then maybe they don't excel at math and reading as much and they're considered dumb. You know, but very often they're not as overly analytical to a degree that it's a little bit too much. Like I sometimes feel myself that I'm an overthinker, but that's just the judgment of myself. And I have to kind of meditate on that. And that's okay to overthink sometimes or to think a lot. It's okay. okay it's just wife, thinking. My wife and I, yeah. she has the aesthetic sense and I have the practical sense. There you go. So, she's the artist, musician, stuff like that. Beautiful. And it's complimentary. And I think, yeah, there you go. We, every relationship needs both. That's exactly right. And it's a very... It's a very male and female. I don't want to make that absolute distinction, but it's a very male and female thing as well, very often, not, not in an absolute sense. But you start to realize that people who go too far in the left brain direction are putting too much of a separation between themselves and the environment. And like we said, that's the root of a lot of depression and anxiety is being too left brain in a way, being too much about my ego is separate and I feel isolated and I feel small. And feeling better is more about being maybe a little bit more right-brained and more connected to everything around you. And this is not an, an exact science, but it's just some food for thought. Um, so clearly, I think Kohelet is, is engaging his left-brain faculty a lot. 
So something I like to do is if I'm overthinking, or I, what I just did right now, right before this class, I was kickboxing for, for an hour and a half. And kickboxing is great because you can't be thinking constantly about the meaning of life. You have to be avoiding the next guy's punch. And if you don't, you're getting hit in the face. And there's something beautiful about that. It's very meditative. It brings you to the moment when you get socked in the, in the mouth, you know? That's what it is. So That's why my face is all distorted. Yeah. Next week, 7 o'clock. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's why I insist at 9 o'clock. Now you know I, that's why I'm not. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. experience. 100%. I don't, I, I don't disagree. In the liver, oh, my God. The kidney also, yeah, it's not, not good news. No, that's yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a certain ability that we have to engage in these different parts of our lives. And, and that's beautiful. Just to realize, all right, that's enough of the philosophy stuff. Let me go play baseball. You know, that's a healthy thing to think or to, or to do. Um, okay. I remember my friends used to kind of make fun of me like, Michael, just don't you ever just want to go out and, you know, not think about these things. Just go play some whatever. And I'm like, you know, you're right. <laughs> and I go do it. And then I tell you, you have to have those people in your life that ground you. And if you don't, you, you might get too far in your own rabbit hole, as we say. Um, so let's see. Uh, so we were saying uh, that was Pasuk 7. Okay, that was Pasuk 16. So now we're up to Pasuk 17. Now it's a little bit extreme. Vesaneti et haim. And so I loathed life. I hated it, for I was distressed by all that goes on under the sun, because everything is futile and pursuit of wind. Everything is hevel. And I hated my life, he's saying, because everything is just meaningless. And they talk about it. The Buddhists will talk about this. The people having mystical experiences will talk about this where you could go into a frame of mind where you see everything being stripped away. So Michael Pollan, the, the, the uh, journalist who, who decided because of all the psychedelic research and psychiatry these days, he decided to self-experiment and do these, some of these drugs. And he, took, he smoked DMT himself. And he said the experience was the most awesome and frightening experience that he's ever had in his life where you smoke this thing, that's, it's called a business trip in a way. It's 15 minutes, because even a businessman can do it during their lunch break. 15 minutes and it kills your ego. And everything was stripped away from this room to the whole world in total nothingness. And he was so scared. He said, I've never felt terror like this in my entire life. Almost like Ben Israel Tadassinai probably. That's probably the feeling. Like the Hakam you say they died twice and came back to life twice. That's what it feels like for a person smoking DMT, dimethyltryptamine. And then he says, as the world started getting restored, he saw the from the Big Bang and the trees and the, the water and, and the earth started and the peopling. And then until this very moment back in this room, he said, I'll get stripped away and it all get returned. There are people who are not even on a drug, just people in a mystical experience, and they're watching everything be temporary. And they're in a little bit maybe of a clinging mindset, because naturally you will be if you see the things and people you love fading away in your mystical mind's eye. You're seeing everything decaying and dying. There's certain ways and techniques that these, that these mystics have developed to help the person. And certain things, certain maybe either a koan, like a riddle to help the person, or really just as simple as come back to the breath. That simple reminder, 
you know, yeah, okay, come right back. Come back to this moment where it just is, and there's, there's no real change, and there's no real decay in this moment. And decay itself is an illusion. The very thought that something is dying is only because it's within time. So now it's your, your ability to just come back to this moment, which kind of transcends time. So there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, yeah, please. That's why in the 60s, guys like Timothy Leary, yes. Absolutely. And, and it seems like today this is the, the forefront of, of research regarding treatment of mental illness. And we could be hopeful with bated breath to see what it holds. I'll let you know in, a, in 20 years from now or probably much sooner than that. Um, what the future holds, we'll see. Um, so now we're reaching the end of the of the pedic. Uh, so he's he's talking about how much he, he hated life because of this feeling. Well, just a couple more remarks about that. All of these reflections brought him to the nadir. So we're seeing where the depression comes from. The depression comes from a certain line of thinking and a certain obsessive thinking that repeats over and over again. The neuroscientists would say you're stuck in the default mode network, which is being on autopilot all the time, all the time, all the time, thinking about the same thing all the time, all the time. And what the three ways, I think we might have mentioned it last week, there's three ways that Jonathan and I talks about in the happiness hypothesis that humans can use to increase their baseline level of happiness. Meditation, psychotherapy, and Prozac. Prozac and whatever other you know, drugs and medications could be used but those three things could be used to increase your baseline happiness. All three of them, I think, have been proven to take people out of their default mode network to be more in what's called a task positive network, which is more just mindful of this moment. So that seems to be a key to escaping these repetitive depressive thoughts. So does come under the subcategory of meditation? I think for sure it does. And I think, unfortunately, Sometimes you go to a minyan and it's always about, we got to finish now. You just walked in. Well, I know everybody's got to go to work, but it kind of defeats the purpose sometimes. But a real tefillah, where you're not, you're, where you're actually having kavana, which even could happen in a minyan where a lot of people are rushing. Some people, yes, some people, no. But yeah, I think for sure, if it's, if it's bringing you into the now, into relationship with God in this moment, well, 100%, I think it does that. Great. So we'll, we'll do this next part quickly. I loathed all the wealth that I was gaining under the sun, for I shall leave it to the man who will succeed me. He's saying, I don't know who this, who this fellow is going to be. It's going to be some Hamor uh, maybe, Amaritz, that's going to take over for me in my business that I built up. Um, and now he's, he's beginning with his emotional reaction, and then he's going to explain to you why. As opposed to before, he said, "Why?" He said, "What happened?" And then his emotional reaction. So it's almost like a, a chiasm. What happened? Emotional reaction. Now emotional reaction, and then what happened? Um, and it reminds you now we're going to see um, this this wealth that he's gaining. Who's going to inherit it? Remember, you know, in the Torah, the three people who have to go home before fighting a battle. If you built the house, if you, if you engaged a woman, you planted a vineyard and didn't get to enjoy those things, go home. Because the biggest tragedy in life is having the potential for beauty 
and having those that potential totally dashed before your eyes. And the same thing at the end of that parasha with Aigla Arufa, where somebody's dead in between two cities, we don't know who killed them. You measure out how far away, and the closest one has to take responsibility, and you have to use all the symbolism of that is an animal that never worked in a land that's unsown, because it's like, look at the potential that this human life could have held, how tragic, just like the animal, just like the land. And those hopes were dashed. So we should always be able to recognize the, the potential within things. And that's what he's recognizing here. There was a potential to my life. It's just all going to be gone one day because I don't know who's going to take over. He's saying, um, and who knows whether he will be wise or foolish and he will control all the wealth that I gained by toil and wisdom under the sun. That too is futile. I don't know who this fellow is going to be. And so I came to view with despair all the gains I had made under the sun. Now he's like, it all meant nothing. That's a really sad feeling to have. You're looking back on your life on your deathbed in a way and saying, yeah, nothing I did matter. Wow, that's depressing. Um, and he, what really is the key here Kohelet lacks a sense of continuity and responsibility for future generations, which would have given him a lot greater meaning to his toil. If he had a family, he never really talks about his wife and kids, I don't think. I mean, he talks about a wife and kids, but not really his own. We, thank God, are part of families, part of a beautiful community. And I see so often that the patients that are most severely ill are the people who literally have no one. So the key here is you won't be this depressed if you realize that happiness is being larger than yourself, which includes the people around you and that which, which does live on beyond you. So even for me, I don't have any kids, you know, but God forbid if I die tomorrow, I would hope that some of what I, uh, the love that I gave to my nieces and nephews, to my siblings will live on. It's a very grim thought to have, but it could happen at any moment. And it's a, it's a way of living a life that's more poignant and more beautiful uh, in this moment. Um, for sometimes a person whose fortune was made with wisdom, knowledge, and skill must hand it on to be the portion of somebody who did not toil for it. That too is futile and a grave evil. It's like, this is really unfair. I have to have this leap of faith for the next guy in the chain. Well, it doesn't really have to be so unfair and so depressing if you maybe made a relationship with those people around you, took somebody under your wing, stood for something to, that you thought maybe could make the world more beautiful. And, and that's your art form in this world is just living through others as well. Um, he doesn't seem to feel any real connection to those future generations. And that seems to be a real issue for him. Uh, for what does a man get for all the toiling and worrying he does under the sun? All his days, his thoughts are grief and heartache. And even at night, his mind has no respite. That too is futile. He's saying, even at night, I'm tossing and turning. I'm constantly worried. Um, and it doesn't matter what it's about. Either it's about amassing more wealth or it's about not having enough. When you're in this goal-oriented mindset all the time, you're never going to be satisfied or happy. 
Um, I would, if I was a psychiatrist, I would recommend a lot of meditation. <laughs> Probably would be the first thing that I would recommend for him. Um, who, obviously, who the heck am I? You know, and it's not, it's not a quick fix, but right, meditation, I think, is awesome. There is nothing worthwhile for a man but to eat and drink and afford himself enjoyment with his means. And even that I noted comes from God. Uh, so now he's also taking a little bit more of a positive thing. He's saying at the end of the day, all we got is physical pleasures, the simple pleasures of here and now. If you've ever seen the movie Soul, Disney Pixar, beautiful at the end, right, where he's He's kind of viewing his whole life. And it wasn't about the big, meaningful picture of it. It was about the little moments. The moment eating a donut. The moment riding the subway. You see the sun between two skyscrapers. The moment of handing a candy to a little boy. Little things like that brighten up our day and brighten up our lives. It's, life is not made of giant leaps. It's made of little moments. And that's kind of the way we could live. Um, uh, so that's his nighttime you know, worries could kind of be thought of in that way, I think. So we said that that's an act of grace. Or really, the, the Michael Rabbi Fox tries to change it to So we'll explain this. For who eats and who enjoys but myself or but God? Meaning, who is the one who determines Who's going to enjoy except for God? Even if you have all the means to pleasure at your disposal, the only thing that's really going to guarantee that you do enjoy those things is God. It's this ineffable thing, a mysterious force in the world that ends up granting us the ability to actually enjoy what we were given. So he's taking a very humble approach here, realizing at the end of the day, even if I could have pleasures that I experience, the only one that's going to determine if it's going to really feel good for me is God. And there's a lot of truth to that because you could have the pleasures and still not get that happiness from it. So that's something to, to pray on and to, to kind of put within a framework and a context in your life as you're enjoying things. If you're enjoying food and drink, make it on a Friday night meal with your family. Beautiful thing to do. To the man, namely, who pleases him, he has given the wisdom and shrewdness to enjoy himself. And to him who, he, who displeases, he has given the urge to gather in a mess, only for handing on to one who is pleasing to God, that too is futile and pursuit of wind. He's saying the person that God has in his favor, that's the one who God is going to give this wisdom to and this shrewdness to enjoy himself it's kind of wise enjoyment and really getting deep pleasure out of those little simple pleasures but the person who god dislikes yani in a way quote unquote and he calls him here hote but it doesn't seem to be a person who is a sinner in a moral sense it just means a quote unquote hote a hazik case though whatever poor fool finds himself in a situation where he bought into this narrative of toil being positive, yeah, that guy's going to suffer, and he's not going to get to really enjoy life. Um, and it's really talking about here the arbitrary nature of God's justice, that there's things that are inexplicable going on, and that makes Kohelet uneasy. And part of the spiritual journey that we all have to go on, and we all encounter this, is the discomfort with this. 
God, why doesn't the world make sense to my intellect? Why can't it be that when you do good, it results in good? When you do bad, it results in evil. Why does it have to be so complicated? And why can't I understand it? And it takes a tremendous amount of humility that we all have to work on throughout our lives in a way, or in this very moment, and that's as simple as that, to just let go of the need to understand. Because the need to understand comes from feeling separate from the universe, from feeling like I need to be one up on it. And it's not about owning the universe with your knowledge of it. It's about realizing you're already part of it and letting go into that flow of now, whatever that means. Um, Some people will spend their whole lives looking for answers mm -hmm. that are not answerable, and they're tormented and tortured because they cannot find the answers to their questions. Exactly. And, and unless you're able to let go of that out of humility, you're going to continue to be tortured by that. That's a great point. I think that's one thing we could take out of this chapter uh, is that idea that despite the fact that we want to understand, a lot of peace comes just from giving up the need to understand. And you, we, we love to scoff at religious people, at people of faith, because we look at them, we say, you didn't go through the thinking that I went to or that I went through to come to your leap of faith. You're just doing it because you want to avoid all that pain of having to think about the world. Then it's like, fine, if you want to take your time to think about the world and try to amass as much wisdom as you can to own whatever you, part of the world you think you can in your mind, and then let go. And then let go and then take that leap of faith. Because at the end of the day, you have to take it eventually. And if not now, then when? You know, and, and I'm not saying to be totally, you know, not thinking and not analytical, but I'm saying to balance it in, a, in an intelligent way. Um, so at the end of the day here, we're just a couple of closing remarks. Wisdom is beneficial, uh, but at the same time, you should take it easy once in a while in life and, and not always be so focused on your wisdom. Uh, there's a paradox here. On the one hand, wisdom includes savvy and cleverness. It's the means of attaining wealth and wealth makes pleasure possible. But on the other hand, the person who did not toil had the real wisdom. He had the good sense to take it easy. Maybe he ate the big meal by his friend's house and the friend was the one who really worked hard. Okay. You know, and uh, you could talk about the psychological pleasure of being the one who owns the, the house with the pool versus the pleasure of just swimming in the other guy's pool. That's a story for another time. Um, and finally, Kohelet himself, it seems, was unable to follow his own advice to avoid the immoderate labors and to enjoy what comes uh, to one's hand. Meaning... If only Kohelet could have taken his own advice, which is stop indulging so much in workaholism and just take a moment to enjoy life in this moment. Baruch Adonai le'olam, amen ve'amen. Questions and comments, please feel free. If you have to go, no problem. Can't wait to go home and go to bed and take electrons. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> just... <laughs> Uh, yeah. Next week, seven o'clock. DMT. Six o'clock. 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 Six o'